Good morning. It's an exciting morning to be here. So I am pleased to announce that after 16 months of a pastor search, the elders in the search team are happy to present Mike Rincalia, who is here as a candidate to be our next lead pastor. Mike is currently the online pastor at Mountain View Christian Church in Denver, Colorado, and we're pleased to welcome him here today to preach for us. And hopefully, if you haven't gotten a chance to meet him in the last couple of days when he's been here, that uh, you'll get a chance later today to do that with us. Right now, I'm going to pray over Mike and then let him speak God's Word for us. Lord God, you know that we have trusted you through this process, and it's been a long one. And we believe wholeheartedly that you have guided Mike and Thurston Christian Church together to this moment. I ask that you would speak your words to us through him today. Let us hear his heart for you. Let us see who he is and his love for you through the message, and that the words he speaks would reach our hearts as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you. I, I honestly was standing out there worshiping and being like, man, you know, really? I, I would just, I think we could have just ended after worship and had that moment. You guys did such a good job. Thank you so much to be led into worship and to be prepared this morning. So Thurston Christian Church, it is great to be here with you. It's great to be on this side of the camera and not on that side, st stalking you guys from Colorado. Um, it's been just a joy to get to know you guys. And I know some of you have come up and I've been like, oh, hey, yeah, I've watched you do this online. And some of you are like, this is weird. <laughs> But I have loved it. It has been good to get to know you guys from afar, and it's good to get to know you today, close and in person. I'm, uh, and I'll try not to get choked up. I'm so grateful to Bruce for what he's done here over the last number of months, and Julie. They are amazing people. They have been such a gift to us in our process. To the elders, to Peter, to Brad, to Robin, awesome. And to the search team, you guys have worked tirelessly to see this happen and I am just my family and I are grateful my family and I are here today so if you haven't met my wife Jill will you raise your hand honey and my son Jonas are here so we're they're glad to be here this morning with you those of you online I don't know which camera's live I'm usually that one okay cool we are so glad you're here joining us as well. I'm used to doing this because I am an online campus pastor so wherever you are we hope you feel like you're in the room with us today you're just as, just as much a part of this congregation as everyone who is here. So we love you and we're grateful for you. So throughout this interview process, I have constantly been asked questions about how I would go about my approach of doing ministry here. What would it look like? How would it be involved? What would, what would go into how I would act and, and what would be sort of my driving thought process as I move through my time here if if I was to be your next lead pastor, if I had that privilege. And to me, it's a privilege. A church that's been around since the 1890s, the idea of the opportunity to become the lead pastor of a church that's been around that long is humbling, humbling. So this conversation I've had with the elders and with the search team through answering questions and all these different elements culminated in a conversation my wife and I had with the search team a few weeks back. And in that conversation, we were in a meeting with the search team and the same questions like, how does this work itself out? How is this going to look? And Jill and I shared with them sort of this idea of the true change that happens in people, the true growth that happens in people individually and within a community. It happens not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And that seemed to be a theme that we talked a lot about with the search team, I've talked a lot about with the elders, is this idea of change happens in the inside and works its way out. You don't change people from the outside in. And as I prayed about sharing with you this morning, I felt led to expand on that core philosophy. And I, I think it'll give you a sense of my heart for ministry, my wife's heart for ministry. When we look at doing ministry, the things that we'll share with you are, are some of the core philosophies that drive the work that we do when we work with people. And I hope you'll find it helpful. 
I hope it'll help you better understand myself, my wife, my family. And I hope it will help you understand how if I'm called here to be your lead pastor, how I will seek to minister to you as a congregation, you in the room, you online, and also how we would look to seek to minister to those that are around us. I think I was told there's 80,000 people in a seven-mile radius from here. Those people need to know Jesus. They need to know Jesus just as desperately as we need to know Jesus. So our passage today, if you have paper Bibles, digital Bibles, we'll have the verses on the screen, is going to come from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 16. And so I'm just going to pray for us. Father, you are so good. You are so good. May we be aware of the fact that we live lives in your hands. That if we are your children, you hold us up, you lift us up. You make us new because of the work of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for each and every heart in this room, each and every heart that's online, each and every heart that will watch this in the week to come, that they would be open and prepared for whatever seed you decide to put into their life or that whatever is already planted will grow as we move through our time together today. We trust this to you. We know that you're good and able to overcome all the obstacles we may be experiencing in this very moment. In Jesus' name, amen. So in today, we are, we almost take this for granted. We model everything. We model everything. Whether it's DNA or the periodic elements, whether we build homes or houses, we have blueprints for those. We do mental mapping. We have business modeling. There's a tool I used for a long time called Business Model Canvas. It's a picture. Helps you describe how a business runs and functions and operates. We have models of the human body. When I was a kid, I did this model called the visible man. It's kind of gross. It's a uh, plastic shell. It's a model that you paint. You do all the veins and stuff, and then you paint all the organs, and you put it in, and it's a model that helps you look at what's going on inside of a person. Oh, there's the large intestine. There's the small intestine. There's the stomach, the heart. It was, as a boy, very cool. As for some people, they're like, ew, that's gross. I'm not really interested in that. You know, and one thing we really take for granted, and I'm not taking it for granted now because we don't know the area too well, but we have these little devices called phones. And you can say, I want to go from my hotel at Gateway over to Thurston Christian Church. Here's the starting point. Here's the ending point. And then it creates a model for me. And then it talks to me and tells me how to get from, from the hotel to here. So we model everything. Models help us visualize aspects of the world or illustrate ideas. Models are extremely helpful. And in this passage we're going to look at today, Paul points to the temple in Jerusalem as a model that we should have in our minds as it relates to us as individuals and as it relates to us as a church. He has a model in mind. And so we have one big idea, and this is something you'll get from me a lot. I always want one big idea. So our one big idea for today is that, and I'm going to do what Bruce does. He steps to the side here. We want to, understanding the temple will help us know who we are, how we're changed, and how we function. Understanding the temple will help us know who we are, how we're changed, and how we function. So we're going to start with 1 Corinthians 3.16, and I'm actually going to use the Amplified Version, which is a version of, of the Bible that's sort of like, if you could say every possible word that this Greek word means, the Amplified tries to include that. And so there's parentheses for adding additional meaning, and it's really helpful. Let's read it. Do you not know and understand that you, not singular you, but you, the church, plural, are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells permanently in you, collectively, as the group, and individually. Collectively and individually. So Paul starts by saying, do you not know? Do you not understand? He's expecting that the Corinthians should know this. He's expecting that. He's expecting his audience that they should know what he's talking about. And in expecting that, he's, he's saying, I expect you to know this, but you know what? Just as any good parent, I'm going to tell you again anyway. Anybody have kids? 
Johnny, I told you not to eat that hot dog, but I'm going to tell you again, don't eat that hot dog. So he's going to tell him again. And he, he doesn't only just tell him again here, he tells him later in 1 Corinthians 6.19, he says it again. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And so he states that the, ch- the church, the whole church, is the temple of God. And in pointing to the temple of God, he's expecting his readers will picture in their mind the temple in Jerusalem. He's expecting that, that they will picture the temple in Jerusalem when he tells them they are the temple of God. In the preceding verses, he's talked about this idea of foundations and buildings, this sharing of the foundation of the temple. And he says, you know what the foundation of the temple is, the church? It's Jesus. Jesus is the foundation, but it doesn't stop there. He says, Jesus had disciples who became the apostles, and the apostles, he built upon, he built upon the foundation of Jesus with the apostles, which Paul is one of and built a foundation. And today where we sit, there has been generation after generation after generation after generation of Christians, teachers and and leaders and lovers who've taught and built and established a foundation that we rest upon today as the church. And so there is a foundation that exists present day for us as believers And Paul continues on stating that the Spirit of God dwells permanently in the church collectively and individually. From this we can understand there is a collective temple, right? All the church, the big church, not just us meeting here today, but the church across the world. There is a collective temple that is made up of individual temples pretty cool. Collective, individual. And all of these individual temples are joined together spiritually to make a collective temple, the temple of God. So let's zero in on what it means to be an individual temple of God. Let's zero in and look at what that means. So firstly, it would help us to have a general layout of the temple of Paul's day. And so the general layout here, I have a little picture um, I drew, which if I had drawn it by hand, you would have had a hard time reading it. (laughs) I I have been told that I have the signature of a doctor. (laughs) So if you get doctor's prescriptions, you'll see that. So this is a picture of the temple of Paul's day, okay? And we get this from the Old Testament accounts of the temple as well as Hebrews chapter 9. So if you want to scribble that down, feel free to do that. That's where these come from. And, And it is a temple that has three distinct elements to it. There is the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And what's interesting to know is that as you move from the outside to the inside, the knowledge of these areas become less. The the knowledge of these areas lessen. And the divisions between these areas also changed as you moved from the outside in. The outer court had a stone wall around it. Okay, it had a stone wall around it. The temple building, which housed the Holy of Holies and the Holy holy Place, also had a stone uh, wall around it. So you had a stone wall in the outer court and a stone building in the middle. So a very defined area. While the holy place and the holy of holies were only separated by a curtain. Only separated by a curtain. So less was known and the divisions were less distinct the further inside someone went in the temple. We can see this in the way that any Jew could come and enter in the outer court. I believe some of the Gentiles could as well. And only priests could enter the holy place, and only the high priest could enter the holy of holies, and only once a year. Interesting side note is when that high priest would go into the temple, that once a year, if things weren't just right, they they would sit, well, they send him in with bells on his garments, and they would tie a rope around his ankle. And if things weren't just right, and he went in that once, once a year, he was dead. And nobody was going in after him. So how'd they get him out? Pull the rope. Because nobody was going to risk going in. 
The other important thing we know is that the, the and what we understand is that the God, the presence of God dwelled in the Holy of Holies. The presence of God dwelled in the Holy of Holies. So the temple was a whole structure made up of three distinct areas with distinct purpose for each one, a distinct function for each one. If you're having a a hard time conceptualizing this, think of an egg. Think of an egg. An egg has three distinct parts, right? The shell, the white, and the yolk. But if you had a white, you don't call it the egg. You call it the white. And so you have an egg is this idea of a three-part whole. When you have the shell, the white, and the yolk, you have three distinct things, but they make together a whole, the egg. This is what helps us to conceptualize the Trinity. We have three gods, but one God. Do I understand that? No. Do I believe it? Yes, because Scripture says it to be true. And so you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct elements, but they're one God, a whole. So how does this temple as a model help us think of ourselves as an individual temple of God? Well, it helps us think about ourselves in three distinct ways, which I have listed here, physically, psychologically, and spiritually. Physically, psychologically, and spiritually. Our physical bodies are much like the outer temple, the outer court area. It's, it's the most known part of us. You can shake somebody's hand without knowing the depths of their psychological or spiritual nature. It's clearly defined. The physical body is clearly defined. You're looking up here at my physical body right now. It's clearly defined. Just like there was clear outer walls of the court and the clear outer walls of the building, the outer court was defined. Our bodies are how we relate to our physical world through our five senses, our speech, our actions. I'm I'm demonstrating part of that physical being through speaking to you today. Our psychological makeup is much like the holy place. It's less known. The division between the outer and the inner is pretty clear, but the inner is a little more harder to ascertain. Our personality or that psychological makeup of who we are, if we were to kind of boil that down and make it a little bit simpler, it's who we are and how we think about things, how we feel about things, how we make decisions. It's also how we have relationships with others. Have you ever heard, "I, I bear my soul or my psychological, I'm bearing to you who I am, I'm letting you know who I am, how I think, how I feel, how I choose, how I make decisions. And we only let people who we trust know us on that level. People we would consider to be priests in our lives. The people we trust are the ones who really know how we think, feel, and choose. What really is some of our driving motivations. And then there's our spiritual makeup. And that is much like the Holy of Holies. It's known even less than the psychological, but the division between the outer and inner is still clear. So the outer being the body, the inner being the psychological and spiritual, those are very clear separations between outer and inner, but in the internal, it's a little harder to differentiate. And the division between the outer and inner is clear, but the division between the psychological and spiritual is not as clearly seen and apprehended. But our spiritual makeup is important because it is, where we have, it is where if we've given ourselves to Jesus, who is the great high priest, who doesn't need a rope tied around his ankle, he is the great high priest. The Holy Spirit in, in our spiritual nature is, resides in us because if we've given ourselves to Jesus, the Holy Spirit has come to reside within us, which Bruce has done a phenomenal job talking about that in some of the previous messages he did from Acts. It also, our spiritual nature, our spiritual makeup is what connects us to God. It's how we have relationship with God. Those who worship God worship him in what? Spirit and in truth.
So it is also the place that we worship God. When we stood here and sang this morning, yes, we were moving our mouths, and yes, we were having feelings and thoughts, but true worship was welling up inside of you from your spiritual connection to God your Father. Spiritually, too, it's also our spiritual makeup is where we draw the place of our true identity as people. It's where we draw our true identity as people. And I'd love to expand on that now, but I will come back to that later. So having this model, just as any model, helps us think about how we function in these three different areas of our personhood. So now I've given you sort of the scientific didactic breakdown of who we are as people from a three-part element in these three areas. But let's now take this, let's, let's take this and think about using it, how people, how change happens in people's lives. Let's use this to help us understand how change happens in people's lives. So how about we start with Adam and Eve? Go all the way back to the beginning, the people in the garden. Let's start with them. So how did Adam and Eve's rebellion against God change them in these three areas? In Genesis, it says that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die, right? If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Adam actually took it a little bit farther. If you read Eve, she says, we're told that we shouldn't even touch it. I think Adam was... (laughs) Kind of extending that a little bit. But I read scripture, and and I think much like Bruce, I ask questions. So they eat the fruit, and my expectation is, why didn't they die? I mean, I'm expecting the story to go, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, then there was this large lightning bolt that descended from the sky, and boom, all that's left on the ground is this smoking burn mark where Adam and Eve were left, were standing, right? Isn't that what you expect to happen? that's what I expect. Why didn't it happen? I mean, I smote the, you know, like, boom, like, you know, like, that's just what I expect. But that's not what it says. And so that's a bit confusing. But I think from our model, we can help bring some clarity. Because we know they didn't die physically, did they? Nope. And we know they didn't die psychologically. They could still think. They could still feel. They could still make decisions. They weren't mindless, emotionless robots. Then the death that occurred was a spiritual death. And we know this because they were separated from God, no longer connected to him. Through their spiritual connection to God, was how they could have that relationship. But when that, die, that death happened, spiritual death occurred. And so they died spiritually. And yes, this is good. So they died spiritually, and because they di- when they died spiritually, the other areas of their person, because they are a whole, were affected. Psychologically, they began dying So they had a death, they began dying, and this dying, they begin to experience fear, shame, guilt, things they were never meant to experience. They began to experience. So they died, and then they began to experience dying, and then ultimately physically, 900 some odd years later, they died physically. Now, one thing to understand in this idea of inside out is with a dead inside that's dying that will ultimately lead to a dying physically, what comes out of you is death. It's wrong. It's actions of sin. Sin is a byproduct of a bad root system. It's the byproduct of being dead spiritually. When you have a putrid source, you have a, pu- a putrid stream. If you clean up the problem of the putrid source, you have a clean stream. So I think sometimes it's hard for us as Christians to think about these parallels that are going on. A dead, dying, and will die. 
But that's what happened with Adam and Eve. And this helps us to see how their rebellion brought change to the whole of their being. It changed them. They, They had died, they were dying, and would die. And the reality is that everyone who is born into this life shows up in the family line of Adam and Eve. Everybody who shows up on planet Earth shows up in the family line of Adam and Eve. And because of that, everybody shows up with a great, thanks mom and dad, the condition of the this, this same sort of thought process, the same sort of life. We show up dead, dying, and will die. And we inherited that from them. So let's use our model, though, now to understand what happens to a person who gives themselves to Jesus and is saved. Well, we're going to go to a different second, uh, second Corinthians instead of First Corinthians. We'll have this on the, I mean, you can flip there if you want, but we'll have it up here. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, one of my favorite verses, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things have passed away and the new things have come. Do you hear how that verse talks about change that has happened? It's a done deal, right? The old is gone, the new has come. A change has happened. Now when somebody gives themselves to, to Jesus, like this verse talks about, there are, and there are many other verses that have this idea of a change that has happened. At salvation, when somebody gives themselves to Jesus, they are spiritually different. They have been made alive, they've been made new, they've been made redeemed, and I could preach a whole other message, but I'm only here to give one today. You'll have to affirm me to get more. (laughs) Robin warned you, I like to laugh. (laughs) I heard him, I heard that. So there is this verse is a change that has happened. Now, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is a little different. It says, But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. Now, that sounds like change is happening, doesn't it? We're changed, but now we have this change that's happening. So just like Adam and Eve's dead spiritual condition affected the other areas of their person, so are the other areas of a person affected by their new spiritually alive condition. Like in this verse, it talks about a transforming that's taking place. This is taking place in the psychological area of a person. They are learning, to, they are learning and growing to think Learning, learning to grow and think in different ways and make different decisions, which is changing how they feel about things. In this way, we could, be, we could say they've been in the, in the spiritual sense, they've been made alive. But in this way, in this idea of process, they're being, they're being made alive, being saved, being new, being redeemed. The transformation that is occurring is bringing in line their thinking, their choosing, and their feeling with who they are spiritually, with what's true about them spiritually. So it's a change that's now bringing who you are in line with who you've been changed to be. Romans 8, 22 to 23 says this. For we, knew, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. So we have heard about a change, a changing And now, a future change. We will get new bodies at some point, and some of you really want to say amen, right? (laughs) I mean, I'm younger than some of you, and I would like to say amen. I had a snowboard accident years ago, and I still feel the effects of that from time to time. So from this, we learn that physically, 
we will be fully redeemed in the future. Now, this is not to say that we should, should just go, okay, well, this body's going to go away anyway. I can do whatever I want. Wrong. <laughs> nope. Paul, Paul repeatedly talks about the fact that we are to bring our bodies into subjection under the working of our spiritual condition and our psychological condition, our thinking, feeling, and choosing. It is to be in subjection and to be led by who we are spiritually. If it's a part of us, and it is a vehicle by which we allow our inner elements to be expressed and made known to the world around us. This morning, I'm letting you know about who I am spiritually and who I am in my thinking and feeling and choosing by what I'm sharing with you through my physical body. So using our model again, we see how salvation brings a change so just like with Adam and Eve, we saw how their, their rebellion brought a destruction of negativity to their whole being. With our model, we can now see how there is change brought to the whole person. We are spiritually changed. We are being changed in our thinking, feeling, and choosing, bringing that in line with who we are spiritually, and our physical will be changed. We will get new bodies. So that is a change from the inside out. And we're going to talk more about some of the, the confusion if we try to go outside in here in a minute. So, a whole, so, the, change, so the, the change of salvation is brought to a whole person. It's from the inside out. A saved person is changed spiritually, being changed psychologically, and will be changed physically. They are changed, being changed, and will be changed. So how does this help us understand our identity? To understand who we really are. What foundation should define who we are as people? In using our model from Adam and Eve and using our model of a saved person, what we have discovered is what primarily defines a person, what primarily defines a person's identity is who they are spiritually. And there are two spiritual families talked about in Scripture. The spiritual family of Adam and Eve and the spiritual family of Jesus. And you're either in one or you're in the other. That's it. Two options. For a saved person, though, this means that who you are is defined by the verses that are talking about the fact that because you've been joined to Jesus, you have been changed. That is who you are. Now, you may not always act like it. You may not always feel like it. You may not always think it. But that's part of the process of bringing that acting, thinking, and feeling in line with what's true about you that God has said about you because of your joining to Jesus and your movement into his family line. That's who you are. So the verses that talk about something that has happened talk about you as a Christian. And sadly, many of us base our identity, who we are, on the other areas of life, on how we think, feel, and choose, and how we, how we perform physically. And these things are dangerous because they're moving targets. The best example is our feelings. You know, you can come into the room and somebody say, hey, Bob, that's a great shirt you're wearing today, and oh, I feel so good. And then they go, if, you know, Steve was wearing it, and that's like up down. <laughs> you just have no control. I mean, it just, and if I'm trying to say I am who I am based on that movement, I'm like a yo-yo. Up and down, up and down. And so this is, this is what Jesus talks about when he talks about building on a rock versus building on sand. If you build your life on how you think, feel, and choose, and on how you look today, it's shaky ground. It'll fal falter. But if you build your life on who you are spiritually because of your joining to Jesus, that cannot be moved, that cannot be taken from you, no matter what happens over here.
Now, I don't want to create some idea that the thinking, feeling, and choosing in our physical bodies are bad or wrong things. They're not. They're not. But they're moving targets that create shaky foundation. What we need to draw from is the spiritual things that are non-movable and non, uh, a non-shakable foundation. Another illustration that kind of helps this picture, I, I heard from an old saint, it was a, a boat, which, so we were just down at the coast yesterday, and we didn't see any boats, surprisingly, other than the Coast Guard, which was strange. But, um, you know, when you have a boat, and it's, it's anchored, right? The anchor is what we would see as our spiritual anchoring in Christ, But that boat up on the surface, it may move, right? There may be waves that come and wind that comes. And that's kind of like what's going on in the the thinking, feeling, and choosing in our physical bodies as they deteriorate. But But that boat never moves from its anchoring. That's the picture of the life of faith. Being anchored in Jesus, although life may move and go up and down and have its hardships and its good times. Now we're going to go back to the passage. I'm sure everybody was like, maybe the people who are like, when is he going to get back to 1 Corinthians? (laughs) But see, we had to have all of this because now as we look at 1 Corinthians, I think, and if if you've had a hard time sticking with me, I hope now all of a sudden it's going to go, you're going to go, oh, I see now. Because I had to give you sort of all of this to now help you make sense of 1 Corinthians. So we're going to go 1 Corinthians 3, 17 to 20. And Paul says, if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person. For the temple of God is holy. That is what you are. Take care that no one deceives himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in the sight of God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise by their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are useless. Now remember, we are individual temples joined together collectively as the temple. Okay? And that collective temple is called the church. We're a part of that church, the collective church, the big church. There's a lot of other churches across the city today meeting that we're all joined to spiritually if they call upon the name of Jesus, obviously. What Paul is warning against here, though, is wisdom that comes from the world. And if you are a student of Scripture, you will see that the world is not spiritually minded first, if they are at all. And so the world draws its identity from the psychological and the physical. And so can we go back to the physical one? So this is important because this one here helps us. This is an, so I've extreme done an extreme on these things. So a person who's primarily focused on their physical makeup, who they are physically, that's what defines them, that's who they are, and they negate spiritual, and they negate the thinking and feeling and choosing. Their primary thing, their primary identity, primarily who they are is based on their looks, their abilities, how they perform. I do well in sports. I don't do well in sports. That says I'm okay. I do well at my job. I don't do well at my job. I'm okay. I'm not okay. I look good. I don't look good. This person determines who they are based on the externals. Maybe this is something you've struggled with. And if it's not you, I know there are people outside today who are pumping and grinding on the trails or whatever to get in shape, to look good, to make life work. This is their primary driver. This is a working on the outside to try to make the inside good. And it's fickle, and it moves, and it doesn't work. We can go to the next one. What about a person who maybe doesn't have the physical domination, but has the psychological focus and dominated, dominated thinking? These people find out who they are based on their relationships, their thoughts, their feelings, and their choices. I have really good insight. I have really good wisdom. I have really good thought. I have all this kind of stuff. And so maybe they aren't that great or attractive physically, but they have this developed mind, or they can really emote, or they, man, they just know how to make the decisions. They always seem to nail it. 
These people are dominated by that. Again, they're work, trying to still work from the outside to fix an issue with their spiritual condition on the inside that they can never fix. Only Jesus can fix this issue. And so Paul warns. He warns in verse 17 that anyone who destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person. It sounds a little harsh. <laughs> but I don't think, again, and I, I'm very cautious, but I don't think that that word destroy, and I've looked at other commentators, that that translation is necessarily the best translation of that word that's there in the Greek. It's best understood as dilute or weaken. And so what Paul is saying is anyone who draws their primary identity from these other areas other than who they are spiritually, not living as a full temple of God, anybody who does that is diluting or weakening the church. When we choose to live out of anything other than who we are first spiritually from the inside out, if we choose to live from any of these outside ins, then we run the risk of diluting and weakening the church. It's not the full expression that God intended. God intended every single temple understanding who they are spiritually and that exploding out through them to one another and then to their community. And that's what the early church was doing. That's why it was so transformational. Because the Spirit was getting out. And he wants to do the same thing in Thurston and in Springfield, and in Eugene, and in America, and in the world. Now, if somebody weakens the church, Paul says that they'll be destroyed. I don't think that's the case either. I don't think God destroys his children. Again, verse 15 helps. If you look back at verse 15, it talks about this idea of works that get burned up, meaning they're of no value. So we can live out of our physical and psychological separate from the, the spiritual condition of who we are and it, that's in scripture it's talked about wood, hay, and stubble that will be burned up. It's actions that are of no help, no value and they bring a dilution and a weakening. Now God will not destroy them like, as I just said but it will weaken and it will weaken because it's from the wrong source. It's from the wrong source. And basically those efforts and actions from the wrong source will amount to nothing. So what's Paul's remedy? What's Paul's remedy? Two things. One, the first thing, if you ever read the books of the New Testament, especially Paul's letter, like with Paul's to the Corinthians, the Corinthians were a mess. They were sinning all over the place. You'd expect the first thing Paul to say to them would be, you, you gotta do this and fix this and fix it. Paul never does that. The first thing he always does is remember who you are. Saints of God, children of God, dearly loved, this is who you are. Then later on, I'll deal with your behavior. But not getting you starting out of the wrong source. So he, he, here, right here, he does it again. Remember who you are. You are a temple of God, individually and as a whole church. And he also says, and I love this because far too often in the church, I think we spend a lot of time reminding, us, reminding ourselves of the fact that we're sinners. And I'm not saying we can't do wrong actions, but I don't think we do enough of what Paul does right here. Brothers and sisters, if you are joined to Jesus, you are holy. You are holy. And that's not because you've performed well, and that's not because you look good. What made the temple in the Old Testament holy? Was it the cleansing? Was it the work of the priests? Nope. Andrew Murray, an old saint, he said the temple was holy because of the presence of God in it. The presence of God is what made the temple holy. If you are a Christian, where is the presence of God today? inside of you. Does that give you chills, shivers? <laughs> I had it. <laughs> I hope it went out to you guys. 
if the presence of God in, is in you, Paul's saying you are holy. That is the remedy. You are holy. And now we'll deal with your behavior, but you are holy. And you are holy because God has made you a temple for him to dwell in. So that's the first thing. Remember who you are. Secondly, he talks about becoming foolish so that we can be wise. Becoming foolish so that we can be wise. Foolishness to the world is spiritual mindedness. Have you heard the lie, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good? It's a lie, people. The only way you'll ever be any earthly good is if you're first heavenly minded because heavenly minded is where you are spiritually now. Ephesians says you are seated at the right hand of God in Jesus right now while you're sitting here trying to stay awake as I'm talking to you. And that is a spiritual reality that's given to us in Ephesians 2. And so for us to be foolish to the world is for us to think spiritual thoughts like that. Being spiritual is what connects us to God. It says that God is wisdom. If you don't tap into that connection, you're not going to have wisdom. And from that foundation, from that foundation and that understanding of our connection to God spiritually, that begins to bring who we are psychologically and physically in proper alignment. So when we know who we are spiritually, we know what is going on inside of us. That begins to bring the other areas of our life in line. And out of that life spiritual that's in us, it begins to work its way out. And we begin to think, feel, and choose differently. We begin to do things with our bodies differently. We begin to interact with our brothers and sisters in the church, and life begins to spring forth. And then we go out into our community, and God begins to, to plant seeds in our heart through his spirit, and we're, being, we're sensitive to those that are behind the counter at the Starbucks we're working with, or at Jerry's, or wherever. And he's like, talk to that one. That person needs a word of encouragement today. Love on them. Invite them to church. Whatever. So this is what is intended. This is how we work from the inside out. And finally, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23. So then no one is to be boasting in people. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So in case you were wondering, who's this Cephas guy? I mean, most of you probably know, but Cephas is the Apostle Peter, just in case anybody was wondering. But here is Paul, Paul is saying that no one should be finding their identity in any of the outside things. They shouldn't be finding their identity in the people or the apostles, the world, life, death, present things to come, or all, all of that stuff. I mean, that almost covers all of it, right? It's, it's describing this, identity of, uh, this idea of finding your identity in the psychological and the physical. These were the things that people were using to define who they were. Oh, I'm with Paul. I'm with Peter. I'm with whoever. I'm, I, this thing in the world I'm, it may, tells me who I am. Oh, I'm going to live this long or I'm going to die, whatever. All of that was defining their identity and who they are. But Paul points back here to the remedy. He points back to spiritual first. He points back to the inside, reminding us what? We belong to Christ. We belong to Jesus. And hey, guess what? You get a double bonus. If you belong to Jesus, you're in Jesus. Guess what? Jesus is also in God, so you're double wrapped. You're double wrapped. And truthfully, Jesus is inside of you too. It says in, Coloss in Colossians that you are Jesus in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you have Jesus in you, you're in Jesus, and then God's around. That. I mean, that seems like a pretty safe, secure place, right? And that comes to you because of your spiritual connection to God. And Paul says, because of your connection to Jesus, because of your connection to God, all of these things belong to you. 
belong to us as the church. All of these things fall into their right place. And it begins first with us living from the identity we've been given spiritually. And that identity has been given to us spiritually because of our connection to Jesus. It all begins in the inside and from there works its way out. And this is how it will work for us each individually. I would encourage you over the next week, focus on who you are spiritually. Look up some of those verses that are talking about your, who you are changed to be. You will find that you're a saint, you're righteous, you're dearly loved, you're holy, you're new. That's just five right there. And I guarantee you, as you begin to focus on that, you're going to begin to see, feel the working out of that into your thinking, your feeling, and your choosing. And you're going to begin to see it work its way out into your world around you. And that's how, if I was to come here and be your lead pastor, that's how we would look to operate and, and work as a church. I would want us to learn what it means to be an individual temple of God, and then to be a collective temple, and then how from that place we will reach out to those who don't have that new alive spiritual condition, who are still living in the actions of their sins. They need to know Jesus so that they can have the new life that he's promised. So I hope that gives you a little bit. That's not all of it, but that's what I could fit in the amount of time they allowed me, because I said, could I have like all Sunday? We could just do a -a preach-a-thon? but they wouldn't allow me. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the gift of of what Paul's talked about here, the picture, the model of the temple. I pray that this sticks in people's minds, that you will show them how they've been changed when they gave themselves to you, Jesus. Father, how how they are new. And as they step into their week and they begin to meditate on that, I ask that that would begin to work its way out and they would begin to go, you know, I can make a different decision here because of who I am spiritually. I can think differently about that. And I'm feeling differently about all these things. And Father, that they would be able to use their physical body to then express that to those around them. Bless their discussion and growth group time. Let it be rich, let it be deep, let it be full of life. What a privilege to be joined to you spiritually. In Jesus' name, amen.